Oh, I just remember something else. Sorry. Did you, you just, did you just bow? No, I was, I was going like this. Flapping. Oh, flap hands. I'm, I'm okay. just flapping. Okay. I've just realized something you have in common because Liz right now is at UNC Chapel Hill oh, and yeah, you're yeah, very yeah. Loyal, loyal North Carolina. Oh. And I know that you were very emotionally devastated. So. You watched the game. Oh my god, yeah. It was. I'm. It was so traumatic, and then it's all—it's awful being in Ithaca when I have my husband is a Carolina mm-hmm. alum, and he used, to, he used to cover Carolina basketball recruiting oh, cool. when we lived in North Carolina. So then, like, we're devastated, and then we come out into the world, and like nobody, nobody cares, cares at all. No question. No, no IVs don't. I mean, the this culture, this IV culture, is one in which they don't have time to care. Mm-hmm. There's only like little itty bitty pockets. You'll exactly. find people whereas Carolina, I was afraid to walk down the street. I was afraid oh, for sure. of which yeah. path I was going to take home. And the next day, I was even in the med school. I was talking with clinicians and they're like having moments of silence and still wearing Carolina blue. Absolutely. It's a big deal. Yeah. And nobody even said the B word. No. I... And I'm not even talking about Voldemort. Nobody, <laughs> nobody said the B word. Like there was no other team. No. I mean, it was just it was so devastating, and it was one of those things where they talked about the fact that it's going to be, that those final two back-to-back shots are going to be played on, mm. like, best of reels for the rest of our lives. I mean, the so probability. we will have to see it over and over and over again, like, that devastating moment that, like, quite frankly, never happens when you're a Carolina fan. Like, it just it never goes in that kind of way. Happen. It was just... I mean, statistically, he's so sweet. He's such a nice kid. He's so nice. It was just oh, is he a senior? Yeah, he's oh no, and he stayed behind because like he he wanted so much to get it, and oh, that poor kid. Like, and he's just so nice and like really sweet, and oh, I just I love Marcus Page so much, and I was just like. For Marcus, like, do it for Marcus. Why? Why did you have such great balance? I I still remember it. It wasn't that I thought UNC was going to win that moment, but I thought they would tie. That's what I thought. I, I thought like, we were going into overtime, and I was like delaying my okay. grief for five minutes. Exactly. And so to be like, you made that work? What? How did that happen? How do you have three back-to-back threes like that? Yeah, I mean, it was just... And then the, the whole game was so poorly officiated that even, like, mm-hmm. it, just everything about it was was awful to watch. Having to stay up. Like, I feel so old, but, like, having to stay up until 11.30 to have my heart broken, I was just like, this, like, I should have gone to bed. I think what we're doing right now is very perfect because Philadelphia, Villanova is having their uh, celebration parade in Philadelphia right now. Okay. Yeah, so, you know. You can record that at this time in history, while those other, the V people are doing their thing, you are crushing it in another way. You are representing Carolina. Exactly, Mm -hmm. exactly. And Marcus Page, Marcus Page campaign. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, poor Marcus. Yeah. So welcome to another session of PhD Divas. Um, this is Liz Wayne. And this is Zain Yao. And this is our first sort of podcast crossover episode with Woo-hoo. a special guest. Um, we have a special guest um, from the amazing three-woman team of Black Girl Magic, Danielle Morgan. Hi, everyone. I'm super excited to be here. Yay! Yay! I'm excited. Also, so Zine and Danielle know each other um, through their PC program. This is my first time meeting Danielle, and we have automatically already clicked. As you can tell, we are Carolina people. Yes. We bleed blue, and um, we are humorous, as I hope you hear about <laughs> how we joke about black humor. <laughs> um, and I'm super excited about this, and also about your podcasting called Black Girl Magic. Yes, yes. 
Um, yeah, I mean, so my, so I guess... Actually, maybe, to... sorry, maybe you should start with, like, because we always ask everyone the same thing. Okay, so because that. Well, that we have everyone that we interview has or will have a PhD, and so, you know, what do you do, and, and why, and then we can connect that to what you do outside. Okay, um, so I study African-American literature, uh, very broadly, mostly in the 20th and 21st century, but my primary interest is um, humor and satire and comedy mm -hmm. and the ways those um, sort of work to help form um, identity formation in um, a post-racial, post-soul society. And when I say post-racial, that's with like huge scare quotes, quotes around it. Mm -hmm. um, the idea of what we kind of um, imagine a post-racial society to be, although... Um, simultaneously knowing that post-raciality is a myth and doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, so I study a lot of, I mean, people always, the first question people ask me is, um, you know, do you study Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock? And yes, I do study <laughs> Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock. But I also study, um, you know, Percival Everett, Matt Johnson, um, Adam Mansbeck, um, I don't know these people, and I love comedy, so it makes me really They're sad that fantastic. I don't know these people. So, so Percival Everett is one. Um, he's kind of like the go-to guy for African-American satire in the 20th and 21st century. Mm -hmm. um, if, if you think of Ishmael Reed as sort of the guy um, probably pre-1980s, then Percival Everett is probably who we think of as the guy post-1995. Um, so he writes, um, he is a... Um, prolific writer. He's mm -hmm. written like 21 novels, wow. um, a bunch of short stories. He's written a children's book. He's written um, some, I think he's written some poetry as well, a collection of poems. Um, but his work deals really, um, he's really engaged with these ideas of identity and the way identity shifts. Mm -hmm. um, that even, um, I was fortunate enough that last night he spoke at Ithaca College, so <gasps> I was able to ask him questions wow. about um <clears throat> His, why he's so interested in identity as a sort of malleable um, form. And he said that one of the things that keeps him up at night is this the idea in logic that A equals A, but that is not the same thing as A is A. And he said that mm -hmm. the, the difference between those two ideas and thinking about the way we're always never the same, that, that like the only constant he said that we ever have is the fact that we're always shifting in some sort of way that our opinions are changing, that our, our um, persona changes, that our presentation of ourselves changes. Um, so because of that, he's really, he, he engages these ideas of um, what makes, what is the, the quintessential part of yourself that makes you yourself, and then sort of imagines it out to these absurd conclusions. And a lot of, uh, a lot of the research that I do deals with 21st century authors who are engaged with those kinds of ideas. What does it mean to try to articulate who you are in a world that refuses to see you in the way that you want to structure mm -hmm. yourself, in a world that um, is so eager to say that race does not exist, but at the same time so desires race as that um, you know, quantifiable way to characterize a person. Mm -hmm. uh, when you get to those kind of nitty-gritty questions. Um, so that's... A, one of the reasons I study comedy is, um, one, because I love to laugh. Um, yes. And, it, you know, when you try to think of what you want to do with your life, I wanted to do something that I thought I would, you know, not be bored with. But also because comedy has this sort of insidious nature that we're sitting around, we're laughing about it, we're enjoying ourselves, 
but these um, satiric authors in the 20, 20th and 21st century are really trying to make us feel uncomfortable and really trying to make us interrogate um, our understanding of ourselves and our understanding of other people as well. Mm -hmm. That's really exciting. I mean, I think of humor a lot because there's this way in which if you laugh about it, it's this way of like you are accepting, accepting something that is really difficult to understand or right. to admit to yourself but somehow if I make it funny then you can you can say that you can have that space yeah and then like when you when you're the person who's laughing you have to once you start thinking about it um you have to wonder am I laughing because I agree or am mm -hmm. I laughing because mm -hmm. I'm uncomfortable and am, am I implicated in this in certain ways um, I guess so, there's yeah. that particularly famous, of course, reason why Dave Chappelle quit. I'd, yeah. I'd be sort of curious, like, if you want to just narrate that for our listeners who might be less familiar, and like, give your what's your reading of that. <laughs> so do you have a you have a read? I do have okay. a read. Yeah, I okay. actually talk about that in in the dissertation. Okay. In fact. Cool. So one of the reasons. Um, so the primary reason. Uh, so okay, to take it back just a few steps, Dave Chappelle was offered uh, very famously a. 50 million, 55 million dollar contract with Comedy Central to continue doing Chappelle's show for three, um, a three year contract, 55 million dollars. Um, he started to record episodes for season three and um, walked away, very famously also went to Africa. Everyone said Dave went crazy and moved to Africa mm -hmm. um, and walked away from his contract. So one of the things that Dave... Um, talks about in that is he says that the we actually have footage of the very specific sketch oh, wow. that triggered this in the you know not that Dave Chappelle wanted us to see this but of course Comedy Central had the footage so they you know published it but it's this um, scene uh, it's the sketch where there are these um, racial pixies where people oh so you mean the lost episodes of yes in the okay, lost okay. episodes I thought there was like some back behind the scenes no thing. no no okay. this is yeah this is this is the stuff all of those lost episodes are things that Dave has been very adamant that he did not want any of it published that he mm -hmm. didn't think the quality was up to par and mm -hmm. he didn't think um, he thought that it was just going to be problematic in certain mm -hmm. ways so the um, racial pixies are these characters all played by Dave Chappelle that um, are meant to entice. Uh, specific people into acting in accordance with racial stereotypes. Mm -hmm. So the uh, black pixie tries to uh, get Dave Chappelle to eat fried chicken on a plane publicly. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, I think they call it the Spanish pixie tries to get Guillermo Diaz to buy like leopard skin uh, seat <laughs> covers for his car. <laughs> All right. Um, the um, they call it the Asian pixie, and it's a um, an older Asian man who meets. Lala, um, but you know, there's that LR merger, so he, mm -hmm. um, the pixie is trying to convince him to like very loudly say rah rah instead of Lala. Um, and then the white pixie, uh, which is a very peculiar for a number of reasons, um, pixie tries to get the white guy to, you know, uh, incorrectly use rap lyrics and uh, talk about like how he enjoys, you know, girls who don't have any butts and things, you know, <laughs> all of these kinds of like silly mm -hmm. um, stereotypes in that regard. Um, Dave said that when he was in uh, costume as the minstrel, as the as the uh, racial pixie, which was ultimately a blackface minstrel, that he heard a white stagehand laughing at him, and he said it was the first time he felt that that someone was laughing at him as opposed to with him, and um, so he said that was the moment he felt that his comedy was missing its mark and it wasn't worth it for him anymore. So one of the things that that I believe. Um, is significant about that scene 
is the fact that Dave um, is unable, in, in these kinds of sketch comedies, that there's so little framing that he's relying on the intelligence of his audience. Mm -hmm. um, in a way, he's not able to effectively mediate. You know, this is a show that comes on late at night. Mm -hmm. This is a show that doesn't allow Dave to really offer that kind of context that he would give in his stand-up comedy, which is where his background is, or, you know, in, in a longer scene. And because of that, um, it really became an issue of what he felt was the price of his soul. Um, and and he, he even goes so far as to say um, that he wanted to make sure he was uh, dancing and not shuffling. Um, and that he felt that this this moment was more of the, the the shuffle as opposed to the dance where he'd get enjoyment. So there's a lot going on, I think, um, with that moment in Dave Chappelle and his inability to articulate the serious um, racial issues and implications that he wants to articulate um, based on what ultimately became his um, late night sort of college age. Um, primarily white, primarily, um, you know, just, just not, not Dave's initial audience. Yeah. His audience sort of shifted in particular ways and he couldn't rely on yeah. their, when their I understanding. Grew up, well, when I grew up, when I was a kid, I used to watch Comic View mm -hmm. <clears throat> when it was still on and it was a thing I'd watch with my family and I just remember what it felt like to laugh at a joke about poverty because I understood it. Absolutely. And I thought yeah. it was funny. But to have these moments where I would either want to tell people about it or say, hey, look, this is funny. And then I would feel extremely uncomfortable because I didn't know if they thought, I just didn't, it was it was almost as if they're not laughing because this is a shared experience and or their mom has ever went behind, like had a switch. They've Absolutely. never had to get a switch in their lives. <laughs> They're laughing because they're like, oh, black people are all poor exactly, and like yeah. have like take bad care of their children. And that's funny. And that was really hard to reconcile. Like, how do I do these jokes? And then then what happens when I release something and they 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 digest it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I <coughs> this wasn't with um, Dave Chappelle. This was once um, this was years ago. But I went to see Aziz Ansari mm -hmm. um, in Atlanta and it was with a big group of friends and friends of friends. Um, and a lot of people I didn't know. And Aziz had this one part of his stand-up where he would talk about um, racial slurs. And his point, like, and he'd name the racial slurs and have people guess what they were. because he th and, and he, you know, pretty overtly articulated that the, his reason for doing this is because um, racial slurs are so stupid. That, that when you think about what you're actually saying to a person, that it's stupid... Um, his point was to try to kind of undercut their power. Mm -hmm. um, what ended up being my experience from that was that I ended up in a car with um, mm -hmm. a few white guys that I did not know <clears throat> yep. who um, pretty much um, ignored me or forgot that I was there but continued to say touch of the tar brush over and over and over again um, and uh, would point to people as we were driving to where we were all God. going Aww. together and say, like, oh, I wonder if she's got a touch of the tar brush. I wonder if he's got a touch of the oh tar brush. Seeming to completely miss what Aziz's mm -hmm. point was mm -hmm. and making me personally feel really uncomfortable mm -hmm. and really unsafe um, to the extent that once I got out of the car, I pretty shortly left after that. Um, but, so, yeah, it's this, this issue of, you know, everybody's there watching Aziz, for example, everyone is laughing, 
and you're under the impression, at least initially, that everyone's laughter is being mediated in the same ways and that everyone is understanding the joke as the comedian um, intends it or as the comedian has framed it. But that moment for me let me understand that even when a comedian frames a joke effectively and explains their purpose, you know, once it's out there, it's yeah. out there for the <clears throat> consumption of whoever wants mm -hmm, it to mm -hmm. use it however they're mm -hmm. going to. I mean, not that this is about humor, but I think a perfect parallel <coughs> would be um, rap music, hip-hop. Absolutely, yeah. Because on one hand, you know, it makes it makes sense to me why someone like Pharrell or Jay-Z or Kanye would say, oh, this is the new black, oh, mm -hmm. there's no such thing. It's because your music relies, one, to be successful, you have to have an audience. And then once you get successful enough, people inherently listen to your music. But also, you're kind of like this global citizen now, where mm -hmm. you travel to different countries, and people aren't looking at you like that with the music. And yeah. so you disconnect from the idea in a way. Um, but it has always been really striking to me when I go and I'm walking on campus probably any campus this happens and I'm passing by like a frat or sorority mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. they're playing rap music oh yeah yeah but I'm positive there are no people of color there yeah yeah because they do not feel safe mm -hmm. and they will not be there but they Absolutely. have all the rap music there and who's perpetuating it like so obviously these artists at this point are well aware that their audience isn't all black and how can you keep, you can't have any control over that. Their concerts are probably all white, but you still have songs that have the N-word in it, exactly, knowing yeah. that people are going to be singing your song. And then how can I get, on some level, I feel conflicted because why am I getting <coughs> upset that this person is singing a song? And should I, why should I ask them to skip over that one word? Right, yeah. It's like, it's so, I want you to, you shouldn't have to say it, but then they are basically saying, say it. Say exactly. it, say yeah. it, and buy my song, go to my concert, get this, say it. Yeah, that's a great point. It reminds me of something similar that I know that Danielle's also very passionate about, which is Hamilton the Musical. Mm, and that yeah. A critique that's been raised is like, or at least a number of experiences I've seen is that uh, audiences for Hamilton are overwhelmingly white. Mm -hmm. um, that, of course, for those of you who don't know, Hamilton is this musical by Lin-Manuel Miranda, um, which retells the story of the founding father, but uses a primarily people of color cast. Um, and... Uh, and it's really witty, really funny. You can um, listen to the album for free. But what I think is interesting is that it seems like in trying to offset somewhat um, this problem about audiences, that that's the reason why they released the cast album, because I believe that um, Miranda said something to the fact that, like, growing up, he and, like, so many yeah, other people, yeah. we couldn't, like, families can't afford to go to Broadway. So instead, you grow up listening to cast albums. So he's trying to, like, make it accessible. But nonetheless, still at the same time, you have to make money off of these audiences. Absolutely, yeah. I think that's that's a great point, especially with something like Hamilton, where, you know, there are all of these different ways to read what, you know, Miranda's potential, um, you know, intention was with, with creating this, this musical, but ultimately, like, having to at the same time be very aware that he's smart enough, you know, and, and even, you know, financially savvy enough that he knows who that... <laughs> who his primary audience is going to be. He knows who the people who are purchasing these tickets are, and he's going to have to create something that, um, you know, while it's using this cast of color, also isn't making a primarily um, a primarily wealthy and primarily white audience feel ill at ease at the same time. That's what scares me about the 
So even though the population dynamics could change mm-hmm. by 2040, right, and it should be minority majority, if the actual buying power isn't changing, yeah. then mm-hmm. it doesn't make any difference whether they're more Hispanics or exactly. more black people. Like, literally, if white people still have all the money, then nothing's changing. Exactly. But people kind of have this false sense that something might change mm-hmm. because we have more people. No, it's just going to become closer to another reality that America is well aware of. But maybe we should switch gears and um, talk about uh, something that I'm actually really excited to hear about, and that is your podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, so my podcast is called Black Girl Magic, and um, it's actually with, with three Carolina girls. Uh, so it's me um, and then my friend CG, who is uh, a Carolina alum and a, uh, currently is a lawyer, um, and my friend uh, Lauren, who also went to Carolina, uh, and Lauren and I have known each other since high school for sure, uh, maybe middle school as well. I think when Lauren was in middle school and I was in high school. Um, but so, and Lauren is a uh, is a marketing whiz is the best way I think to describe. Lauren kind of does it all, uh, but mm-hmm. but marketing is her her passion. Um, and what we do in the Black Girl Magic podcast is try to. Um, think about current events from a black and female perspective and also try to um, uh, pay attention in the media to the way black femininity and black womanhood is being framed so that we can remind ourselves, sort of create a safe space for talking about black female issues mm-hmm. and uh, most importantly perhaps is um, a space where we, the three of us can support each other but also um, where we are looking out at black women and young black women in particular and trying to say this young black woman is doing something fantastic and it's not getting enough um Mm -hmm. you know media play let's talk about this person um like marley diaz with her you know uh thousand books or um you know when amanda stinberg was first making her like really Mm -hmm. huge feminist statements (laughs) we were all over talking Mm -hmm. about like amanda is a queen we love her let's let's talk (laughs) about everything she ever says um, and is that why you guys want to name it Black Girl Magic? So Lauren came up with um, the name of the podcast, and it seemed uh, at the time, and I think still, like a really apt way to describe um, that feeling of um, what makes black womanhood something um, special. And, and the idea, I think, of black girls as having magic or of being magical is... Um, a good way to sort of give context to the feeling of why it's hard to describe it to people, mm-hmm. um, that there's something special, um, and that there is something, um, I mean, quite frankly, that, there, that there's something cool that, you know, maybe people don't always understand, but that you yourself and others who look like you, others who have had your experiences, um, are sort of engaged in, and, um, that, that there's just, that it, that it becomes this sort of broad base of of being able to support yourself in a world that often marginalizes you based both on your race and on your gender. That you're sort of flipping that script and mm-hmm. saying, no, it's my race and my gender that makes me special, that makes mm-hmm. me a part of this fantastic community of um, supportive sisters who love me and who I love. Um, and kind of thinking about it from that, from yeah. that regard. I think... Um... I understand it's a feeling that I have. And I yeah. think 2014, I kind of had this a wake-up moment, and I was like, black women are amazing. <laughs> Michelle Obama, boom. Yeah. Scandal, boom. <laughs> Empire, what? 
they're they're all just killing it. And don't Beyonce yeah. just like snatched everyone. And you, I'm pointing at you. Oh, you're pointing at me. <laughs> well, obviously, but what I'm saying is like having that representation. Absolutely. Just kind of going. Wait a minute. There's more than one at the same time. Oh shit! Did they have like a little conference? Yes. Like in a little room, and they were like, "All right, Beyonce, you got January." <laughs> you know, like actually, you have like the Just whole the year. Chart. All yeah. right, we know you started December. That was like an early Christmas gift, and then because it was just really amazing to see all of that, to see darker colored women, and to see people who got to be strong. They got to be sexy yes. and sensitive. They got to be love interest, and it felt amazing. And they were in charge. Yeah, like, amazing. I mean, and I think even the the issues, like you said, that like you're seeing. You're seeing all of these characters on TV and all of these performers, and they're different. Like, it's not the same woman over and over again playing the same sassy best friend or something. That You've got these women. I mean, you've got somebody like Olivia Pope, but you also have Cookie Lion, and that they're not saying, how do these two women exist in the the world? That, That you're seeing the ways these two seemingly very different characters intersect and 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 don't you have michelle obama just exactly being like michelle obama absolutely yeah oh my goodness she's like like a fashion ex- inspiration for me absolutely mm-hmm. just yeah. to look at she is an everything inspiration <laughs> when a barack when he became president i was more excited about the first lady i was mm-hmm. like i cannot believe a black woman is about to run this country and with two little black girls and her black mama coming into the white house too like it was just i mean god i'm gonna miss them so much like it's mm. i mean it's just that idea of representation is... I felt like I wasn't famous enough because I wanted to be able to meet them. And I feel like my opportunity to do something important enough to be able to be in their grace, like grace their presence right now, is <coughs> like getting lower and lower. But that's fine. I just... They're so, I actually... I met Barack Obama once. What? Um, and the what? reason I did... So, back when my family lived in North Carolina, my dad was um, a county commissioner in Durham. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, he had the opportunity to meet Barack Obama, and he was like, I'm just going to bring my family, and maybe no one will stop this from happening, and maybe you guys will end up getting to meet him. And Mm -hmm. this was when he was on, he was still a senator, but he was making moves to, so it was right on the cusp. Um, But, but yeah, I mean, just, again, this was, you know, eight years ago, nine years ago, something like that, but... I mean, For me, it was never, so... Yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> but, I mean, it's just, it's amazing to, even even now, to look at him and think of what he has accomplished, even just on the pure level of representation, is amazing to Every me. time you see those kids, like, the pictures of, like, the little black boys and little exactly. black girls, he gets to shake their hands. I mean, it's, a, it's amazing. God bless him. I hope he has a therapist. Because, yeah. I, like, just knowing what kind of, um, what kind of emotional, well, I won't say baggage, I don't know what the right word is, because it's like, it's like, um, if you grab a rope, it's lifting you up, but that rope also has, like, maybe has thorns in it. It's like, mm. it's like good and bad at the same time. And so, if I feel this pressure to be good, and I'm not even president of yeah. anything, like, I cannot imagine what it's like. I hope he has a therapist, but at the same time, thank you, please. Thank you so much for being there and yeah. being awesome. Just being, just being there. Oh my gosh, you got to see Obama. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was one of the coolest moments I that I've he ever... was very cool. He is. I mean, and again, this was, you know, years ago. I 
imagine he is probably even cooler now. Probably right now. He's like, I'm almost out. I'll do whatever I want. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, this is, I, I love watching him now. Like, they had a big White House party and, like, Prince played all the music. And that's, like, a second term. That's Jeez. a second term oh move right there. Oh, my like, I'm having Prince, whatever. Like, I'm just mm-hmm. doing what I, I want. I just watched Purple Rain. Oh, it, it holds up so well. Oh, yeah, I mean. <laughs> Yeah, it's my it's black card almost got removed, so I had to watch it really quickly. Yeah, <laughs> Why, and then the Dave Chappelle reference made a lot more it sense. Or? It was my first time seeing it. Oh, okay. literally my first time seeing it. And um, then the Dave Chappelle skit made more sense somehow. I thought he was making up that line about Apollonia. Oh yeah. Oh no, bathing in the waters of Lake Minnetonka. It was just really funny. Anyway. <laughs> Oh my god, you have an awesome podcast with Black Girl Magic. You get to see... Wait, what about your friendships? Like, you guys have been friends for years. and <coughs> So, I know CG through Lauren, and then Lauren and I... So, Lauren is sort of... Lauren is the mastermind, and then um, mm-hmm. she's the reason that I know CG, and then um, CG and Lauren have been friends for years, and then Lauren and I have been friends for years and Lauren put me and CG mm-hmm. into conversation and it was just I mean we the three of us get along so well it, it was magic always, yeah it was exactly, <laughs> exactly. It, was, it was absolutely magic like we we just instantly had rapport and you know when you're I mean you guys know like even when you like somebody and you start thinking about doing a podcast like you never know if it's gonna like if that that mm-hmm. friendship is going to translate for a listening audience or if you'll have enough to say to fill up the time or, you know, how things are going to work. But I think when you genuinely like the people that you're talking to, it does become um, that sort of situation where where it makes things easier that you almost forget that things are being recorded or that this is something more official and it really becomes, okay, I'm just going to talk to y'all about, mm-hmm. you know, whatever was going on this past week or about, you know, the next cool thing that Ava DuVernay did or, you know. The next one. Yeah, whichever the next and the next and the next thing that Ava does, um, we'll talk about that. But, yeah, so we've, I mean, in some form or another, we've all known each other um, for years and years. Um, and I think, I think that has made, um, and it's nice also because right now, you know, I'm in uh, New York State. Lauren is in um, Oregon, and CG um, is in D.C. We'll definitely have to compare notes about how, like, technical notes about yeah. recording. Yeah. The struggle. It oh, my goodness. It is the struggle. Yeah, I mean, it's just, there's, there's always, even when, and once you've got, like, we've got three people, so it's always, like, somebody's something has always dropped out and that we have to kind of go back and figure out how to do it. Um, and then we've got the time difference now, too. Oh, yeah. So, I'm going to be on the West Coast. Soon, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it's going to... It changes things about when everybody's available to record. I mean, we've done things like, you know, occasionally we've recorded at like 9 p.m. Eastern time because mm-hmm. that'll be when Lauren gets off of work and, um, you know, just trying to negotiate mm-hmm. all of these things. I mean, but it, ultimately it becomes the same sort of way that you have to negotiate keeping in touch with yeah. one of your friends anyway, mm-hmm. just for a standardized more formal amount of time right right so whenever Zion and I are in the same space we just like record 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 because like the best sessions are always the ones where we're always in the same room Mm. um I think when we're distant we still if it's just us two it's still good but it gets like a little harder when we have if we just want to have a guest so to speak yeah 
um, yeah, feeling out another person's vibe as well as trying to like be in sync with each other is definitely a challenge. Mm-hmm. As well as the recording component, yeah. which is oh, boring we, for our listeners. We but. do this funny thing where um, if there's a lag, I'll say something, but I'm like, oh wait, she wasn't finished, and I'll stop. But then she hears me start and oh, stop. I know. And so then, then yeah. she does that, and so then we do. We're this just whole, being awkward. We're like. I'm gonna respect your wishes. I'm gonna let you finish, but and then it's like, no, I'm like, you finish. Like, no, you finish. I need to start. And it's <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It is really hard. And even the sound quality, like, there's just so many mm-hmm. issues when you're not actually in the room. Mm-hmm. With yeah, the person. like the backgrounds are different. Yeah, the background in this room is not the same as the background in that room. Actually, so <laughs> I give Zion a hard time sometimes because <laughs> I'm like, turn that clock. Yeah, off. I have this clock in the background that, that ticks very audibly. And Your so when cat we record, is making noises. I know, making the cutest noises. Stop <laughs> touching, stop tapping yourself. It's going to say touching yourself. That's not... Hey! Okay. <laughs> stop, I can hear you! <laughs> I was wondering, if would you like to talk a little bit about your experience generally going through graduate school? And I think that um, one thing we haven't had any guests uh, or we haven't talked about yet is... Um, the many challenges of being a graduate student parent and having a family in graduate school. Sure. Yeah. Um, so overall, my graduate experience here has been, has been by and large, I would call it a positive experience. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that has been, um, I think, because, I mean, it's hard to attribute it to one particular thing or another, but I think it has been um, sort of, very intentionally uh, seeking out people who I knew would edify me in mm-hmm. certain ways and trying your to, team. yes, and trying to make sure that um, fellow grad students for certain, but also professors yeah. that where there were personality clashes or <clears throat> where there were, where I didn't feel that that person was necessarily going to be somebody who wanted and and I I don't mean for this to sound like sinister like there you know like anyone was out to get me at any mm-hmm. point but when you don't feel like that person necessarily sees eye to eye with you yeah. is a good way to say it that that might not be somebody that you want on your committee mm-hmm. or that might not be somebody that you want um to take multiple classes with and things right. like that one bias can snowball into like an actual thing that can be measured exactly and then you don't you know and then that's the person who's saying maybe you should defend next semester. Or that's know? the person who's talking to the person who has the power over exactly. you. Exactly. Saying, well, I heard, well, I don't know if she should recommend her for this. Exactly. Like, you'd be surprised exactly. how those secondary conversations mm-hmm. will affect the person who actually does have something to say. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So just trying to cut things out like that. Um, I have been, and I, Zion is too nice to, to ever mm-hmm. say this, but I have been um, really, really thankful for Zine the entire time I've been here because she has been such an incredible resource um, both as a woman of color um, and as a um, academic and as it, as a um, instructor and just as somebody who was negotiating grad school an and awesome was person. doing it really oh, well um, in a in a space where there's not a lot of you know women of color um, mm-hmm. both I mean in at Cornell and then also in English there just aren't there aren't that many of us in Zion, I think, fostered a great sense of community and fellowship and making sure that people were taken care of and not. I mean, it's it's so easy, I think, for for all of us in grad school to kind of get really isolated. Yeah. And, you know, you're just working on your one thing or your area of specialization or you're, you know, you're in the library, you're in the lab, whatever it is. Um, 
but having having people that you could talk to um, and make sure that you like you're on the right track, that you're doing the right thing, uh, that the microaggressions you're experiencing are not things mm-hmm. that you know you're just experiencing in your head. Um, that somebody else can be like, no, that was that was really messed up, but that happened, and mm-hmm. you're right to feel bad about it. Um, Zion gets more angry about things than I do sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> but it, that's actually been empowering because it's like, oh, maybe I should have been upset about that. Wait a minute, I am upset about that, and then I do something about it. So. Yeah, I know, it's nice to have somebody who, you know, if you talk about a particular thing that's happened, they aren't like, well, I'm sure they didn't mean it that way, or I'm sure, you know, mm-hmm. um, that that they, that Zion always, you know, validates your emotions and says, okay, well, let's think about this, let's talk about this. Um, so that, I think those, structuring, I think one of the biggest parts of grad school particularly as a woman as a woman of color is structuring your circle finding people in your department and also outside of your department um, who will edify you who believe in you who understand the unique challenges of being a woman of color in academia um, and certainly at a school like this where there are not a lot of people of color mm-hmm. both within the school and within the broader community that that I mean this is not as much as Ithaca weirdly wants to sort of act like it's a very diverse (laughs) community Mm -hmm. it is not racially or ethnically diverse um and so finding finding those spaces where you feel edified when I I did something with Zine when she was doing I forgot I'm sorry I don't Uh I don't remember what project it was but it was the public library and you were (coughs) picking up some books and you read this passage from um, like the 1900s or so when Ithaca was talking oh, about yeah. how the South Side, they were like mentally retarded, poor. Oh my God. And um, just like shouldn't be able to procreate. And yeah, I there's think, a lot of eugenic discourse happening in Ithaca at the beginning of the 20th century. And it was just so. interesting because this particular part of the, of the town, I think, is still in some ways viewed as like the, the poor mm-hmm. place, yeah. the, to believe the place where people of color live or violence and things like that. And it was just interesting to me that you could go back over a century and people here still thought the way they thought. They still had these ideals of, like, we're a great, pristine community, but that place, we should just, like, mm-hmm. eliminate them. Yeah. Communities don't change that. <laughs> yeah, I've read... I can't remember what it was, but it was um, an interview with somebody um, in Ithaca, and they said that one of the reasons they wanted to, that they were so pleased with Ithaca and they knew it was the place they wanted to raise their family is because Ithaca is an intentional community. Um, And I was like, even reading that with this person's, you know, good intentions, Mm -hmm. like, in mind, I was, I kept, I could not shake the feeling of, wow, that is really um, racist and elitist language um, to call this an intentional community, Mm -hmm. because I understand what you mean when you say, like, what what the intention is that made you feel especially safe and secure in this, in this city. Um, So yeah, I mean, just those kinds of ideas that we have these historical documents in writing where people are talking about, like, you know, we're going to structure it in this way, and, yeah. And so were you married before or after you started your PhD? So what has I, that been like being... Being married? Being, okay, yeah, maybe, but not just being Speaking married. Speaking of being married. Um, <laughs> married and also being in a PhD program. Yeah, so when, um, 
before I came to Cornell, I was in a um, master's English program in North Carolina, and um, I was dating my husband at the time. Uh, we got married right, um, let's see, we got married in May um, and then moved up to uh, Ithaca that August, I guess. So we were very, very newly married when we first mm -hmm. came, to, when we both first came up here. Um, and by and large, um, I knew, I knew that my husband was going to be a supportive person and that that's, that's his nature and that's the kind of person he is. But, um, by and large, it has been really, he's been, he's been a really supportive, mm -hmm. um, person. He came up to, um, Ithaca before he had employment, um, but he knew he, like, we knew that we were going to try and figure out a way to make that work, that we were just, mm -hmm. something was going to have to, we were just having faith that something was going to <laughs> yeah. work out in some way. Um, we wanted to make sure that, um, you know, as newlyweds, we were not going to become accustomed to not being in the same space, especially since, um, when we were dating, we, you know, lived like 10 minutes apart from each other until we ended up moving in together. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think, when I've talked to some of my other friends who are married or engaged or part, have partners or mm -hmm. um, and some of my friends who are divorced uh, PhD students, I think one of the the issues for uh, women who are who are married who are in the PhD is how I'm trying to think of how to phrase this exactly how much of your husband's ego is tied into what your professional aspirations are. Mm -hmm. That there are some mm -hmm. men who are absolutely, even if they think they are at the time, they are not okay with a woman who is pursuing a doctorate, especially if they don't have one. Yeah. Right. Um, because, I mean, for a number of reasons, but one of which is that, you know, your career aims um, might be the geographic determining factor and they if they have a problem with that or that you know you might one day be the breadwinner or something mm -hmm. like that um I think that that those kinds of issues are very real issues uh, that a lot of people um face and that I have just been fortunate that um I think that in my situation my husband and I have had career goals that really complement each other in, in nice ways. He, um, he, you know, has a background in journalism, but he currently works in higher ed marketing and communication. And so our, um, our interest in moving outside of Ithaca eventually was the same. Our, um, you know, our career goals were to end up in places where we could both have fruitful careers doing the kinds of work that we enjoy doing. Um, but I mean that I guess they call it the two body problem mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. in academia that that it's a real thing not just from the perspective of you know potential employers but also from the perspective of the actual married couple who's going to um, try to negotiate all of that that it can be it can be a really difficult situation. Um, mine has been um, by and large a, a positive one. Um, but and 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 that actually kind of segues, I think, really nicely into um, 
a conversation about motherhood mm-hmm. and the PhD. I have a um, an almost three-year-old daughter, um, and the only way this was possible for me was because my husband is really supportive. Um, I don't think I would have been able to finish in the amount of time I did um, without my husband being somebody who wanted kids and was willing yeah. to be, like be an active parent and not sort of be um, somebody who, you know, comes home from work and it, you know, plays with her for 30 minutes and then is like, well, you know, time for my beer and my you know, sports. So yeah. that's the end of the day Take for, off my me. Shoes for me. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so, but, but even within that, um, having, having a child as a PhD candidate or being involved in academia is really, really difficult. Um, I am incredibly happy that I have a daughter, um, and I'm incre- I feel incredibly fortunate to be in academia, but that balance is um, a challenge a lot of the time because there are certain things I don't get to do on both ends that mm-hmm. I would like to do. Like what? Um, I mean, there are you know conferences that I've wanted to attend mm-hmm. um, that I haven't been able to because I felt like I would be apart from her for too long, or um, I would um, have to try and figure out a way to get her um, to come with me, or mm-hmm. you know, my husband would have to take off from work because it was during the day that I'm usually home or mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. And daycare is expensive, so yes. we only have it certain days. More expensive than for faculty, apparently. absolutely. Yes, one hundred percent more expensive than for faculty. Which, yeah, which yeah, which is a whole one hundred percent more than exactly. More than uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean it's. It's insane how expensive daycare can be. Yeah, um, I was actually seeing this conversation that um, there should more major conferences should offer subsidized childcare. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah. It would be. I mean, IKEA it would be does. Phenomenal. Why can't conferences? Yeah, I mean, I think I've seen that like MLA occasionally does, yeah. but even I think this last year, um, and my daughter didn't come with me to MLA or anything, but I think I saw that like they ended up canceling it because not enough people used it. But they were going to give people, if you applied for funding, you could get some additional funding. But then I was still thinking, like, but then you don't know where to go. Like, at least if MLA is providing you with the actual space, then you would put your child in there, and it would be at the hotel, and you could check yeah. on your kids. But like, it's like a strange city in a yeah. different state. How are you supposed to scout that out? Exactly. Like, who do you talk to, and, like, who's going to be willing to watch your kid for six hours and then never, <laughs> never again, mm-hmm. you know? So it's... Yeah, um, the daycare issue is a tricky one. Um, even as far as just um, sort of the camaraderie of, um, like, your cohort and things like that, um, there are just certain times that I can't go out or I'm too tired to go out, quite mm-hmm. frankly, or I'd just rather, you know, sit at home watching Doc McStuffins with my daughter. And so I do that instead. But it does put a slight, I think, difference between uh, some of the grad students who have students and some who don't just if you have or sorry if you if you have children or you don't <laughs> students are children sometimes. exactly exactly it's it's the school of life um but yeah you know if you've got if you've got a child um you're just not going to be on campus nearly as much um so those kinds of issues are are ones that I think um you have to consider I've had a lot of uh grad student friends who are considering having kids and they're mm-hmm. always like when you know like when yeah. is the right time and I'm like I have no idea <laughs> when the right time is like 
Maybe it's during the PhD. Maybe it's you know. Well, the scary thing. Here, I have no idea. Is that even an undergrad? That's a scary thing. I like remember people are asking that even before oh, they absolutely. even got a partner to even you know they're, they're kind of like well I'm trying to plan my life right exactly. now I'm 21 or 20 I'm trying to plan my life right now and here's a panel of women to so tell me when was it the good time for you to have children yeah and then they said don't ask me it just happened like it just you just happened it happened and you deal with it exactly. but every single women networking event, <coughs> that's what the conversation is yeah. when's a good time can no we one, have it all what's our work life no exactly. one has ever said exactly I stop, well, I, I go to them, I mean, I have free food, networking. But generally, I kind of tune out with the panel because it's always the same answer. I don't know. You just do it and you yeah. deal with it. And the thing you should be thinking about is how do you have a partner who's going to be supportive? Exactly. And that's another thing, even with my committee. Like, I was so fortunate that my committee did not view that as the end of the world when I got pregnant. Like, they, so I, I was so scared to tell my chair that I was pregnant. But I had, like, I had terrible morning sickness and was running out of her class all the time because I was sick. Um, and I felt like I needed to go ahead and let her know I was, like, nine or ten weeks pregnant, something like that. Um, so I set up this, like, very secret, like, I need to talk to you, but you know, I'd really like to do this in, you know, in private, kind of. <laughs> like, and she's looking at me like, what, like, what are you about to tell me? So I, um, like, I closed the door and I'm like, I just wanted to let you know that I'm pregnant, and she, like, bursts out laughing, and she was like, okay, and I was like, and I really need you to know that this, I don't want you to view this as any indication that I'm not fully committed to the study of English literature, and then she laughs even more, and she is like, Danielle, yeah, she's fantastic, and she was like, you did not need to say any of these things Did you close all those doors for this? Yeah, exactly. I thought you were, like, sweet. She was like, I thought you were going to tell me you were dropping out of the program or something. She was like, you looked so serious. She was like, this is a happy thing. I am happy for you. Let me know what I can do to help. Mm -hmm. And um, she, she was like, I know that you're committed to your work. Everything you have done up to this point indicates this to me. You don't have to worry. Just let me know how I can be a resource. Um, and that made me feel fantastic. I mean, it was, it was such a blessing to have an advisor who would say something like that. That's not the case. And that's a huge forever. juxtaposition yes. to um, a conversation we were having with someone yesterday where she just said, well, I came from a different background, mm -hmm. and I'm not sure if I can do the qualifier in this amount of time. Can I bring it back? And they said, or push it back, and they said, well, maybe you shouldn't be here. It's, oh it God. felt like every yeah. single thing that she was requesting <clears throat> or asking for, it was like, well, maybe you shouldn't be here. Jesus. And it's just yeah. so like weird to go from – can I raise my hand? Maybe you shouldn't be here to, I'm having a baby. <laughs> like, well, that's not, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's so, and I know. You can do this. Yeah, I mean, and this this professor, is, you know, is a woman of color and has mm. been a personal and professional resource um, as a woman of color for me. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I have heard, I, I heard uh, one of my friends who has two children now, when she came back after taking time off, from having her first son, one of her professors said, well, don't let it happen again. 
yeah. about her pregnancy. I've definitely heard that. Even from a friend who had an advisor who's a woman say, like, you should never get pregnant. Yeah. Like, and it's a sort of sad thing that, like, there sometimes does seem to be this attitude that um, for some established women academics, because they could only succeed in a certain way, that becomes, like, the only exactly. way they think they could promote it. And so they become very restrictive and very, like, I don't think they understand the impact that they're having on their graduate students when they, res- when they treat them like that. It's it's just such an odd concept. And I know I don't have any children. I understand, I, from seeing people, I know it's difficult. But what I've experienced is that, are that people who have children just start to have more organized lives, which yeah. means when, in, in terms of lab, you're in your lab space, they come in at nine, they leave at five. Mm-hmm. And they got work done, and they had all these measurables, whereas I, if the students who don't have any other, like, uh, no children, maybe no partners or anything, you, you come in whenever you want, you stay as long as you want, but you're not working all the time. It just means that you're socializing, you're hanging out there. Absolutely, yeah. And so I really have never seen, if anything, I've actually seen increased productivity from people who've had other priorities outside of the lab. So it's just really interesting that no one ever thinks... Well, let me say, let me talk about your progress and how you improve it after you've actually been exactly. failing, not like before you've ever failed. <laughs> and it seems ridiculous because, of course, there's so many studies happening now about how um, first gender, but also marriage status and child status affect um, people in academia. And I've been seeing everything from statistics and history that like mm-hmm. men with children are rewarded for having families, yeah. whereas women with children are punished. And like that proportionately, like, yeah, women with children in academia are punished professionally for the, for these decisions. And even though, oh my God, like that's, that's a whole conversation altogether about the whole um, business of whether women could have it all. It's like, oh, it's not, it's women's own fault for um, not being able to succeed because they're always having kids. Like, you know, that's often like the rhetoric you end up hearing in popular culture. Like, it's just like, yeah, the wage gap is just because these women are choosing to do whatever. And it's, uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, um, that's a huge yeah. conversation to I get into, but it's so the have it all thing doesn't make sense to me. I think I've just disavowed it, mm-hmm. um, I, or I've accepted that you can have it all, but not at the same time. Yeah, I think that's everybody always makes um, priorities in their mm-hmm. life, and it's funny that we sort of only uh, highlight the priority that might involve family when people make priorities that might involve alcohol Absolutely. or the gym yes, exactly. or or the lab all the time. We all have priorities, and it means that something else in our lives suffer. And um, there's ways to be successful and and then do those things. It really exactly. is about the team and who you have around you, which is why I also do the podcast with Sun. Yay! <laughs> she covers all the balances. Yeah. yeah. Maybe something great to finish off this fantastic mm-hmm. interview is tell us what's next for you. Yeah. So I, I'm really, really excited um, that I was recently hired in a tenure track position. Um, should I say the name of the? Sure. Oh, it's up to you. Like if you can. Then. So yeah, um, at Santa Clara University, I awesome. teach African American literature. So it is a, it is absolutely a dream. Um, a dream location. I'll be closer to my family. This um, is in California. Yeah, in California. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and my my family lives in California now. Okay. Um, my both of my brothers, in fact, one of them is in college in California. The other one is pursuing a musical career in California. And then mm-hmm. my parents live in California now. So everybody kind of went out there at the same time, except for me. They all mm-hmm. left me on the East Coast. <laughs> but so I'm, I'm joining them. Um, so that'll be fantastic. Um, the school is, is really exciting. And 
Um, they seem uh, to be, the, the department uh, is friendly and uh, smart, and um, I'm just really excited to be joining this, this group of scholars and um, to be able to teach, to actually teach African American literature is going to be, um, it's going to be great. My daughter wakes up every day and she says, um, are we moving to Santa Clara today? <laughs> and I say, no, Aww. not yet. And she said, it's taking so long, oh. mommy. And I was like, girl, yes, I agree. <laughs> it is taking forever. But I have the most I perfect promise. visual of this girl. Yes. So I mean, that is how I, I feel agree. every single yeah. time. Especially like, as it's yes, snowing yes. still in Ithaca yeah. in April. But. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, just, and it's so windy, too. Like, there's everything about Ithaca right now. It's just not my favorite thing. Mm-hmm. Um don't get but, me started. But yeah, so I'm I'm excited about um about this next chapter. Um, I still hope to continue working in um, the field of humor, but I've also gotten really interested in um, in mixed race studies, but in sort of a different way. I'm really intrigued by authors like Danzy Senna and mm-hmm. Matt Johnson, who um, acknowledge being mixed race, but feel that being mixed race does not negate their blackness, that you can be both, and that a mixed-race identity does not mean that you are not black anymore. Mm-hmm. Somebody like Barack Obama, who always talks about, you know, being raised by his white mother and his white grandparents, but at the same time identifies as a black man and check black on the census. Have you seen the Tay Diggs mixed in me? Oh, I, I, I saw that it exists. I haven't read it, though. He just wants his child to have the option to not be black. Yeah, and I don't, I mean... That's a whole other yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah, can of yeah. worms, but but yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't, I I'm not really sure why, because I re- I remember hearing that Tay Tay Diggs was saying he just didn't ever want his son to like for his his ex wife Idina to pick their son up from school mm-hmm. and people be like, well, who's this white woman, and I like it raises. Five million questions for me of, number one, they're going to know that that's Tay Diggs and Idina Menzel's kids. So, like, that's that's not a question. Number two, in what world are we living where people don't understand that there are adoptions or mixed-race families or biracial mm-hmm. people? Like, in what world are five-year-olds looking at? I, I mean, as the mother of a, of a two-year-old, like, I can't think of a situation in which my daughter has seen mixed-race families and been, like, confused by where this happens, or her own existence in a mixed-race family. She's not, like, confused by what's happening in the world. She's, mm-hmm. It's just what, I mean, so it just se- it seems sort of like a straw man for him to be able mm-hmm. to be like, well, you know, I just, I want him to understand the nuances of his existence. I mean, he can, but and that's great, but that's doesn't necessarily need to be the it's not an and or it it seems much more mm-hmm. useful to think of it in the twenty first century as a both and the way mm-hmm. a lot of really interesting um african american uh literary uh scholars and authors are right now, yeah, one thing I'd add is also Danielle's daughter Kelly is awesome is. oh my God, <laughs> she was like that one time like reading a a picture of book, an ABC book that started with A is for activists yeah, and like um, hearing her say A is for activists and like, Oh my God. And she was like, so she was awesome. She just, thank you. Awesome yeah. I, she, she is such a trip. I mean, she's a, she's a really, really sweet, 
little girl, and I, I'm really fortunate to be her mom, and I don't know, she's she's fantastic, I love her, she's great. When I have a kid, my kids are learning ABCs by that Sesame Street, Aretha Franklin, Oh yeah. the Sesame Street, did oh, the gospel style, yeah. I cannot wait to make someone do that. Maybe, actually, I'm going to have a niece or nephew soon, so I think mm. I'm going to make them do it. Yeah, you should, I mean, it's... And that's the fun thing about having kids is that you can just be like, okay, well, you're going to watch this particular version of the thing because I love yes. this. So this is how you're going to learn this. You're going to confuse everybody because you're going to be, like, rocking and dancing. But you'll learn it faster than everyone else because exactly. I'm right. <laughs> thank you so much, Danielle, for being on our show. Oh, no, thank you guys so much. This is so much fun. I love this. To do this again, yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh, sorry, I thought about this five way problem. Oh god, wow. we can, we'll figure we'll it make out. it work. We'll do it. We'll make it work. We'll do it. We'll make it work. We'll do it. 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 We'